Hello, it's Monday, November the 27th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow, and I apologize in advance for my voice. I picked up a cold in the past couple days, but I'm going to try to soldier through here. Joining me today in studio is Dr. Morris Fiorina, a Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and the Wendt Family Professor of Political Science at Stanford University. He's the author of numerous articles and books on American politics, the most recent one of which is Unstable Majorities, Polarization, Party Sorting, and Political Stalemates. Mo, good to see you today. Good to see you, Bill. I'd like to start by reading to you an editorial that I saw over the weekend. It was published in the Philadelphia Tribune, which is the nation's oldest continuing publishing African-American newspaper. And here's what they wrote. Quote, we are a nation that is truly divided. None of us were around during this time, but based on the history books, this time feels like the Civil War that took place from 1861 until 1865. That war lasted four long years, but it feels like we as a society are in another civil war, and this one is lasting much longer than four years. In fact, it feels like it's been going on now for almost 20 years. Since 1997, with the rise of cable news and the ever-present 24-hour news cycle, our country has experienced a great divide not only with our opinions, which I should add has always been a mainstay in the country, but with facts, and this is new and deeply troubling. So here's the question. How deep is the civil war today? How much of a divide are we currently experiencing? which you will be more free to say what? <laughs> well, I, I say that I see a lot of commentary like this, and I find it concerning because it's so false that the one uh, element of truth in that uh, editorial was that since cable TV, uh, we, we feel like we're more divided. But the fact simply is that uh, we aren't. If you look at public opinion data, uh, this talk of civil war and, and deep division uh, simply uh, is not there that we've had a sorting out where both parties have become more homogeneous than they used to be, and so there's not as much overlap between the parties. But it's also the case that more than 40% of the country doesn't even sign on to either party. And when you look at the ratings for these cable TV shows, uh, basically 1% of the eligible electorate watches Fox on any given day. Uh, CNN's Don Lemon and and Anderson Cooper uh, one uh, one night in July were uh, second to Nick at Night, Yogi Bear reruns. So, I mean, the, the fact is that if, if you watch these shows, uh, you know, it's easy to see, that, think that we're in a, some civil war uh, kind of situation. But if you actually look at the data and you realize that the vast majority of Americans are simply not taking any part or paying any attention to the kind of conflict we see featured on these shows. And that's what you've done in this book. You've offered a lot of political science and a lot of data to explain what has actually happened in recent election cycles. <clears throat> There's an interesting chart, Mo, in your book. It's titled The Era of No Decision, 1874 to 1894. And it looks a lot like today's politics in this regard. You sort the presidency and the two chambers of Congress into R's and D's. And it's sort of a alphabet soup of RDR and DDR and so forth, just constantly shifting back and forth between the two parties. With one difference, though, I would note the presidency. The presidency has been stable our last 20 years, but it was unstable during the period from 1874 to 1894. Why was it unstable back in the end of the 19th century, Mo, and why is it unstable today? Um, I think it's it's uh, more unstable than you realize. It's true that we've had two presidents get reelected, but the margins are very narrow. Uh, in two cases, in the first, actually since this period in the 19th century, in two cases we've had a split between the popular vote and the Electoral College. 
And the fact is simply that uh, neither party has been able to govern in a way that earns the lasting trust of the public, which has happened more often in the McKinley era, the Roosevelt era, et cetera. And so the electorate keeps trying one, trying the other, and then sort of it's going to keep doing that until somebody gets it right. We have reelected three consecutive presidents. Clinton was reelected, Bush 43 reelected, Obama reelected. It's only happened once before in the country, the third, fourth, and fifth presidents, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe. And yet, we have flipped from Democrat to Republican in 1994. The Democrats took it back in 2006, and then the Republicans took it back in 2010 and 2014. Mo, why is the public taking it out on Congress but not taking it out on the man in the White House? Well, I think they're, they are. They're taking it out on the party. I think that's the the other thing that's sort of lost. Uh, for example, um, we used to talk about the personal vote and the incumbency advantage. It's almost disappeared. In the last election, the incumbency advantage in Congress was 2%. That's back to 1950s levels. And people are voting for the party now, not the, not the person. And I think that's true in the presidency as well, that basically uh, Bush had and as far as most people are concerned, a reasonably successful first term. I think you know, Obama, people simply didn't uh, take out the economy on him. They took out the economy on still blaming the Republicans. And so I think of them, in both cases, they, uh, they, had, uh, they were able to get reelected. And Clinton, of course, things were really going pretty well in 1996. Well, basically, <laughs> I'll put it that way. The Republicans <laughs> self-destructed. So things are going pretty well for the Democrats in, in 1996. So I think the fact that, um, that the three presidents were reelected doesn't really provide us with that much information. I, I should note, for example, that Obama was the first re-elected president since Andrew Jackson to be re-elected by a smaller margin than right. his initial election. So it wasn't as if he was getting a huge vote of confidence from people. It was just enough to win. Exactly. You've been talking about this now for a couple of cycles now, and I remember when you first wrote the piece, uh, sort of saying the world is not flat, the world is round, that <laughs> actually the center, the center holds. What, what got you started on this? Were you just, were you just, what, did it just strike you that the commentary was wrong, or did you just start looking at the numbers and the numbers added up differently? What, what started this? It, in the early 2000s, there was this narrative that came, the red and the blue, mm -hmm. and how divided we were, and that's where you first start seeing the <coughs> Civil War metaphors coming up. Culture and, War. Uh, right. Yes, and then the Culture War metaphor. And I, I've been looking at uh, public opinion data all my career, which is 45 years now, and I've been associated with the National Election Studies on and off since about 1978. And so I just see data all the time, and I wasn't seeing anything like the, the kind of indication in the data that commentators were claiming. And I realized that basically there had been this huge, there's always been a difference between political elites, whom I call the political class in this book and other books, and ordinary people, that the political elites are more ideological, they're more knowledgeable, et cetera. But that gulf has gotten bigger and bigger, that ordinary people are still out there earning a living, raising their families, trying to have a little fun on the side, whereas increasingly political politics has become almost sort of a, an intense hobby like sports fans, you know, for, for people it's become tribal and uh, and for others. I have several essays on how the, the nature of the people who operate politics is different now from what it was more than a generation ago. And, uh, and so what happens is we, the, the political class is the public face of politics. They're the people we see on TV, they're the people we hear, uh, and they are unrepresentative, or as I say in this book and previous books, they are abnormal. And people tend to see these people on TV and think that's the norm. And their own experience is not like that. Their neighbors aren't like that. Their friends aren't like that. But they think, you know, this is the way it is. There's, there's a funny parallel 
um, in public opinion that if you ask people, what's crime like in the United States? They say, oh, it's awful. It's a jungle out there. They say, how about your neighborhood? And they say, oh, my neighborhood's fine. If you ask people what the schools are like, they say, oh, the educational system is failing. It's a mess. They say, how about your schools? They say, oh, our schools are fine. You know, and so it's everybody thinks that they're above average, you know, and yet the, the society is below average. And I think it reflects that same thing, that you only hear the bad news. You only hear the failures. And, and to the extent you pay attention in the media, and actually there's some interesting evidence that the more you pay attention to the media, the more uninformed you are. Not uninformed, the mal more malinformed you are. You actually are, have the facts wrong uh, because the media simply, they run with a storyline that, that they want eyeballs and they want they want ears they don't care so much about the truth all right so when we use the phrase polarization political polarization we should not apply it to the voters we should apply it to what the political parties we should apply it i think definitely to the parties uh, definitely to the political class and i also think it's important uh, the term polarization implies that the middle has given way right. and everybody has gone to the extremes now that's not what has happened that if you look at the electorate in the large in the United States, it really doesn't look any different now from 1976 when Jerry Ford and B Jimmy Carter, two centrists, uh, ran for president. What has happened is what I call sorting, what I point out, and it's very important. But it used to be the case there were liberals in the, in the Republican Party, there were conservatives in the Democratic Party, there were moderates in both parties. Now the parties have really sorted where the liberals are all in the Democratic Party, the moderates are all in the, the Republicans are all in the cons, conservatives, excuse me, are all in the Republican Party. The moderates are still there, but they don't have a home in either party. Basically, either party wants just enough of their votes to win and then basically says, all right, forget it. Now we're going to govern according to what our base wants, and which is part of the reason we end up having this ping pong because the, the moderates decide, I didn't really vote for that, whether it was Social Security private accounts in 2005 or whether it was Obamacare in 2009 and 10, and the moderates react against you, the independents react against you in the next election. Right. So the sorting, sorting is very important, and it's resulted in party polarization. But whenever we use that term, we shouldn't forget that a big part of the electorate is just not in either party. Right, now let's explain that partisan sorting. What exactly is partisan sorting? Give us a couple of examples of how partisan sorting has affected politics today? Well, people talk about the demise of bipartisanship, and you don't have coalitions anymore right. across parties. And the fact of the matter is, who do you form a coalition with? That uh, in the old days, conservative Republicans could get together with conservative Southern Democrats. There aren't any conservative Southern Democrats yeah. anymore for all practical purposes. In the old days, liberal Democrats could get together with liberal Republicans and pass, say, a civil rights bill as in 1964. There aren't any liberal Republicans to get in, to get in coalition with anymore. So the, the, the sorting of the parties has resulted in basically the, the kind of party government that political scientists used to want, but now we see the problems with it, um, that everything is done within one party or the other. It's led to gridlock. Uh, it's led to stalemate. We can't get at And it's led, I think, Francis Lee, one of my colleagues, younger colleagues at, uh, at um, University of Maryland, has really done a nice job explaining how in Congress the legislation, the emphasis is no longer on legislation. The emphasis is on winning a majority in the next election. Right. So if the other party is for something, uh, you're against it. doesn't matter whether it's a, an effective solution to a problem or not. Right. The idea is to get enough votes to beat them in the next election. So you've seen in the House the demise of the Bull Weevil Caucus, the Yellow Dog Democrats, the Northeastern Republicans. You do have a handful of Democrats in the Senate, though, but they're defined not so much by their philosophy, but their geography, red state Democrats. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, yes. Mm -hmm. So in the Senate, you could, in theory, 
cross-knit, if you will, bring a few over. We'll see if that happens. But you're right. There's just not this this coalition forging anymore. What do you attribute this to? You know, that is the, the $64,000 question. And we can point to some factors that are pretty clear uh, for, and, and others that we just can't figure. And so let me give you an example of each. Um, the huge African-American migration to the north after World War II especially, uh, changed the whole complexion of both northern and southern politics. That now northern Democrats not only were ideologically in favor of civil rights, they had voters in their district who would reward them for this. And so the northern Democratic Party moved farther uh, pro-civil pro rights, which had uh, two effects attracting more African-Americans, because basically Eisenhower still achieved a fair amount of African-American support. Uh, that went away. And southern Democrats uh, were increasingly alienated from the party. And then the Republicans saw the chance to make hay and by going down south and, and adopting the Southern strategy. There is correspondence between Richard Nixon and Martin Luther King in the late 50s where Nixon is talking about ways to get more African-American support. Ten years later, he's adopted the Southern strategy. And that reflects, I think, the demographic shifts. So that's a clear one. Other, other ones are just puzzling. For example, uh, take abortion, which is not on the agenda until the basically um, probably around 1970 or so. Um, earlier, say 1960, if you just said, all right, abortion is going to be a party-separating issue, which party will be pro-life? You just said, well, the Democrats will be pro-life. Catholics are Democrats. Southern Baptists are Democrats. That isn't the way it worked out. Uh, and so, I, you know, we, how, how did the party sort in that issue in the way they did? Or take the environment, which is up for grabs in the early 70s. Nixon and Muskie are competing over the Clean Air Act. And the, the, you think about the classic uh, environmental groups like the Sierra Club, Audubon Society, they're, they're rooted in the upper middle class Republican professional class. And so you might have said, well, the Republicans are going to be the, uh, the environmental party because the Democrats have industrial workers, their you know, they're, they're, they're plants pollute and so forth. Nope, ends up the opposite. So I, I think the, the sorting, I think, is really, you know, why it happened and how it happened. I think it's only, we only have some partial answers. And uh, I, I'm convinced it has to do with big demographic shifts, ideological shifts in the population. But boy, to try to trace it out in any detail is something I try to do in my, my 2011 book, but not in a way I was satisfied with. Right. You're not a surfer, are you? No. <laughs> do you think there's a wave coming in 2018? Uh, well, as, uh, was it McMillan said, a, a week in politics is an eternity, and so we're looking a year ahead now. Um, I, don't, I don't, at this point, <clears throat> right now there's nothing out there that strikes me as a wave. That, um, that Trump has a solid 40% who just are with him no matter what, I think. Uh, and um, I, I see the Democrats don't need to take that many seats. 24 seats, given recent experience in the last two decades, is not a lot. Um, but the economy is looking pretty good. If the economy keeps perking along through the next year, we don't have that factor working against the, against the Trump administration. And the other thing is, although the Democrats are highly engaged and, uh, and intense, it's also the, the dark side of that is there's going to be a lot of primary fights. I mean, they're talking about primarying some of their incumbents. Uh, there's going to be massive primaries between the pro progressives and the, uh, and the more establishment wing. And so you could have a badly divided. I mean, the if the Democrats manage to come together, uh, pick strong candidates, if the economy turns down, then I think we could see a wave. Uh, but those things have to have to happen. It's not inevitable. Right. The generic congressional ballot, I think, is at about 11.7 in favor of the Democrats. Does that strike you as uh, troubling for Republicans? I know it's a very yeah. big number, but these 
there can, you can shift, I think, a year mm-hmm. before the 2010 election. I think it was about a plus 12 for Democrats, so yeah. it can flip. Yeah, I, th- I think that's correct. And they, they typically, there typically is a big, uh, is sort of an edge for the Democrats in that question. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I, so, I mean, it is larger than usual. So I, if I were Republicans, I would not be sleeping comfortably right now. But uh, it's, there's, there's no such thing as inevitability in politics that uh, we'll have to see how this plays out. In 2012, you put together a book called Can We Talk? The Rise of Rude, Nasty, Stubborn Politics. Is Unstable Majority is the sequel to that, or is it the companion to it? Or? Uh, in a sense, um, neither. Um, that was, um, I'd written a lot of things, other people had written a lot of things, and the publisher of our textbook said, why don't you put together a sort of a supplementary reading? Right. So it was really a sort of an attempt to, to put a, a series of essays together by, by prominent scholars who had written in the area, uh, in, written in such a way that freshmen sophomores in college would have no trouble. Uh, uh, and, and I mean, some of the, I mean, well, actually my chapter four in this book is, is basically taken from my essay in that book. So part of it does build on previous work, but a lot of it is just original essays written by other scholars. All right. Uh, the rise of rude, nasty, stubborn politics. People will push back and say, well, wait a second, Mofi Arena. Politics has always been rough in the United States of America. Why in 2012, why in this decade are we talking about it being particularly rough, particularly nasty? Uh, first of all, I think that's true. I think there's a, there's a lot of historical amnesia right. in discussions of contemporary politics. I mean, is, do you think it's yeah. because of social media and I, the information I, age I, is I, just so unfiltered? Or I think, um, in a sense, some of the if you go back and look at some of the convention speeches for for on you know in the Roosevelt era, you mm-hmm. know, and malefactors of great wealth, and right. I, but I think there was a there was a time and place for a lot of it, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't 24 seven. Uh, the way it is now. And I also think certain norms have broken down. Um, that for a while, at least, the, the sense was you didn't attack somebody's motives. They were they were all good Americans, too. They were just stupid and wrong. You know? And so whereas now, it's customary to say the Democrats hate America or the Republicans want to impose sort of a fascist state. You know, so, I mean, it's, it strikes me it, it's, gotten to, it's gotten it's hyperbole that, that the, the way they talk now is simply not believable and ordinary people just blow it off. Right. So do you think this is the second era of no decision in American politics? Yeah, I think that's um, – there actually may have been a may, – maybe the third. The, the third. Well, if you, well, if you go back to the then. pre-Civil War. Pre-Civil War. At the time from when Jackson steps down, from there to the Civil War, you basically have no decision. Uh, and um, – in fact, if you think about the Civil War, it may have been that the whole period of no decision started around in the late 1830s, went all the way to the late 20th century. Right. That um, that essentially Lincoln gets under 40 percent of the vote and becomes president. Right. You have a lot um, of moving it, parts during that period yes. too. You have the demise of the Whig Party, the birth of the Democratic Party, several feckless American presidents along mm-hmm. the way. There are a lot of a lot of different things going on. Exactly. There. Exactly. So uh, I mean, one of the things we always have to struggle with is what's the norm and it may be uh, some people begun to think the norm was this sort of early 20th century uh, period where we actually had majority parties republicans for the first into the 30s and then democrats into the 60s and so maybe we're back to just what we've always been a really fractious contentious you know uh, battling country right but that period in the late 19th century that was a 20-year run Mm-hmm. Well, we're at year 20, we're approaching year 24 of the current run right now, 1994 to 2018. How long is this going to go? 
I don't have the answer to that. <laughs> I, I know as we, Brady and I, my colleague Dave Brady and I always right. say, we don't predict until we analyze. Right, yeah. but if you if you start doing that, that letter scoreboard again for this current period, uh, we could be putting up an R for president, a D for House, and an R for Senate, which would be a new combination. So in terms of the scrabble tile of American politics, mm -hmm. we keep trying these different combinations. And well, eventually we're going to run out of combinations, and the voters are going to have to then decide what to do. What do you think is the future of, of parties right now in this country, Mo? Do you think the Republican Party and Democratic Party are starting to run out of gas? I think they've been running out of gas for close to 20 years. Right. I, I keep saying that I, I'm looking the next election to, to sort of reorient the parties. We have a party system that's old. Mm -hmm. It's a party system that's been fighting the same issues for well over a generation now. A lot of the issues that arose in the 60s. And the, the problem is we have two parties they're cohesive. We have a big heterogeneous country, and these two parties just simply don't represent the, the variety of views we have. You have to buy into things you don't want, no matter which party you you uh, join. Um, the European countries, which by the, for the most part are not as heterogeneous as we are, they have multi-parties. So you can, it's one thing to have a, a highly ideological party if there are five or six of them. You can take your choice. But if there's only two of them to choose from in the United States, then, I mean, our, our Stanford students, you know, they, they understand the ones I talk to that um, the, the sort of entitlement programs have to be, re, have to be um, reviewed and, and, right. um, and revised, that it's not going to be there for them. Um, but on the other hand, if they want to vote for a party that's willing to take a look at entitlements, they have to vote for a party that's anti-abortion and anti-gay. And they're not willing to do that. Now, if you had a party that's, if we had several parties where you could have more choices, um, but we don't have that. And so I think there's a frustration with people that a majority doesn't think the party system represents their views very well. And so I, I keep looking for a third party or some uh, and it's insurgencies within the parties to sort of fracture and reorient uh, the parties. And I thought, I, I, the hope I had when Trump was elected was that possibly he could do it that uh, the, the scenario a lot of people talked about was a big infrastructure bill that would, on the one hand, alienate a lot of Republicans who were worried about spending, uh, but also attract a lot of Democrats who, um, you, who support unions, who want more jobs, et cetera. And so if you could start essentially driving a wedge between your, your, both your party and the other party within the parties to try to sort of form new coalitions. Now, that didn't work out. They didn't do that. Uh, but at some point, I think I think it's going to happen that people are just going to somebody's going to come along, and uh, and start fracturing things. If you broke up the two parties right now, Mo, how many pieces could you break them into? I count five at least. That's a Bernie Democratic Party, a more Hillaryish Democratic Party. On the Republican side, you could see a Trump Populist Party. You could see a very constitutional conservative party. Let's say a Ted Cruz party, and then maybe a John Kasich more progressive, centrist Republican Party. So that's five right off the top of my head. Maybe even add a libertarian. A libertarian yeah, on top of that. Yeah, I think that's a good analysis that I think basically that would capture the range of views we have in the United States. If you had those six parties, you could probably, most voters would be happy with it, one of the choices they were able to make. Right. But if the U.S. were Germany, Mo, how would those various pieces then merge together? Because as we're seeing in Germany right now, 
Mrs. Merkel is having a very hard time forming a government. I think what's happened in Germany, as happened in France, I mean, basically the French party system collapsed mm -hmm. in the last election. The socialists are gone, for right. example. Now, I can remember talking to a, an Italy specialist uh, in the 80s complaining about how dull our elections were. Republicans were going to win the presidency. Democrats were going to win the Congress. And he said, you think your elections are dull? He said, the, the vote for the Christian Democrats and social Democrats in Italy hasn't changed by more than 2% since World War II. <laughs> yeah, and now it's gone. Now the Italian party system crumbled. Uh, and, the, and now the French party system has crumbled. And the German party system uh, is crumbling for the first time. And I think, in a sense, the same thing has happened uh, there. The, the major parties were sclerotic. They, they hung on to a certain set of issues, and they fought on familiar territory, and the country moved on underneath them. And that left the ground open for new parties. Now, it's so much easier. You can't have a Macron in the United States. Right. I mean, in the last election, I think you know, if a Macron-type figure could have emerged, could have done very well. But you can't have somebody sort of step in at the last second when people decide they don't like the choices. And, and so, I mean, I, I think in a sense, although the, the differences look, look striking, I think there's the same underlying problem that the, the established parties have just grown old and don't fit their societies much anymore. So what will it take to break the parties of their polarizing habits? We've seen candidates come along in 2016. There were a few of our obscure Democrats who ran as <clears throat> more centrist practical Democrats. They got nowhere fast. Kasich ran on the Republican side as sort of an open-minded Republican. He didn't get, well, he blasted throughout the process. He didn't have much to show in the way of victories, though. States like California or have changed their primary process. Now we have a top two primary, which is designed in theory for Democrats and Republicans to try to forge a coalition during the primary that hasn't panned out yet. What do you think it's going to take, Bo, to, to end this polarization within the two parties? Well, it, it's hard for us. I was just saying it's hard for outsiders to come in mm -hmm. um, now. Um, I think in the last election, if you know, I, I wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post earlier in the spring saying was the original title was Run, Mike, and Jim Run. And it was urging a, a Bloomberg and a Webb right, candidacy right. to try to break both parties, essentially. Um, and, and I think it, it is just hard. And given, given the primary process, I mean, Trump showed it can be done. Um, and then Perot showed that a, a rich outsider, uh, again, when the two parties are ignoring a certain issue, a rich outsider can come in. And it, it may be, I think, that that's the more likely scenario, that somebody with all the money in the world, like Trump, or at least claims to have all the money in the world, like Trump, uh, comes in. Because the primary process is just really hard uh, for a Kasich-type figure to come through, or on the other side, um, a Jim Webb-type, I mean, a, a Manchin or a Webb-type person to come through. So I think it probably has to be an outsider candidate. Um, you have to wonder if, if, if they could have gotten, well, Gary Johnson, I think, was a flawed, highly flawed candidate. But if they could, could have gotten Bill Wald on, Bill Wald on, the, sta on the stage right. for those debates, uh, what would have happened? You know? and, and so I think, and, and I, I, my understanding is the, um, the court suits against the FEC to try to open up the debates are proceeding. And so we might have a more open uh, debate format next year, which would help advantage an outsider candidate. But it's just hard the way the, the, the institutions are set up in this country, both the formal constitutional institutions and the informal legal things and legal things. They created a two-party duopoly, and it's really hard to break that So unless you can break it from within. Speaking of institutions, generational institutions, the millennials, what's going to happen to millennial voters in this country? 
I don't know. Your book I suggests mean, that they are yeah. very cynical and they're very turned off in the process. Yes, yes, very much so, and for good reason. <laughs> I mean, they're just uh, they're screwed in so many ways, uh, and their um, their future is simply not as bright as generations that have gone forward. Well, pick that, um, expand on that a little bit. Are they are they just turned off by the fact they could not relate to Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump? Are they turned off because they don't think their issues are being addressed? Or are they turned off just because they don't like the way politics are run? Um, I think they're turned off a lot by their situations, mm-hmm. uh, which are much more difficult than, uh, than the earlier generations, much less favorable toward building careers. I mean, living with your parents when you're 30 is not, <laughs> not, not, not an ideal situation. It didn't start with Clinton. I mean, I, I, certainly there was no enthusiasm uh, for Hillary Clinton among that group. But I think it, it just sort of, if you think about it, a party system that grew up in the 60s and how old these kids are today, it just doesn't speak to their, their issues very much. And um, a lot of them are minorities, um, the, the very heavy percentage of them. And the, um, I lost my train of thought, there was a third point I wanted to make. The, um, oh, they, they were excited about Obama, as everybody was. And it didn't work out, basically. I think they're disappointed, uh, their turnout fell off. And so I think there's just a sense that um, the political system doesn't speak to their, their needs and interests. And they're up for grabs. I mean, uh, if, the, if the right candidate could capture them, they're, they're up for grabs. I've had this theory for a long time that 1998 is a great what if in American politics. And what if uh, Bill Clinton in 1998 or 1999 had stepped down from office? Mm-hmm. Would Al Gore then have won the presidency in 2000? I'd argue he probably might well have because he'd have been a sitting president, not a vice president. Would have been free from the weirdness of the Clinton relationship and would have taken a lot of the wind out of George Bush's sails about morality. Um, and maybe we're not having this discussion today about harassment so much in the he said, she said and the complicated factors because Bill Clinton would have been punished for what he did back in the 90s. Is 2009 also a turning point when we look at polarization? The idea being that Barack Obama came to office in 2009 with a mandate with a very large return in his favor. In theory, a guy who maybe could have brought the two sides together and worked together. And I know Democrats will say, well, Republicans never want to work with us. And Republicans say, well, they never seriously approached us. But do you think that 2009 is what stands out as what's missing here? Yeah, I think it's one of the things. I, I think uh, I, in the book, in the overreach chapter, I think I talked about how both both Bush and Obama missed opportunities. Mm-hmm. That on being, uh, after 9-11, we were for a very short period highly unified. And had Bush come out at that point and said, not I'm a war president, but I'm a national unity president. And sort of moved more toward the middle ones. They came out and said things like, we're going to drill in the Arctic Wildlife Refuge. They did a bunch of things that were just calculated to drive the Democrats away. And similarly, Obama, um, you know, there's this mythology out there that Republicans refuse to meet them at all. When actually, if you look at all these things that said, like, we're going to make him a one-term president, et cetera, they were said well after the fact that Woodward details in his book how Rahm Emanuel and Nancy Pelosi, they just basically took over the agenda uh, and didn't, just simply wouldn't give the Republicans anything for it. There's a, um, sometime maybe you can get George Schultz to talk about his health care story. Uh, but they, they basically, I think Obama, in his case, it wasn't that he probably was that partisan, just he was a standoffish, uh, didn't get involved in the details thing. And so he let, you know, if you're going to have a, a unifying presidency, giving your agenda to Pelosi, Reid, and Emmanuel was not the way you start. Right. Now, in fairness mm-hmm. to Bill Clinton, maybe there were two other overreaches that came before that, one being 
the government shutdown. Mm-hmm. Newt Gingrich wanting to be the most powerful guy in Washington. And the other being the idea to impeach Bill Clinton mm-hmm. and do that process. So maybe in addition to 2009, we look at those 1995 to 1999 as the other period where maybe we missed out on killing this polarization in the cradle. Yeah, I, in that same chapter, I talk about the Clinton healthcare initiative. Uh, where, again, it wasn't the first thing on people's minds, but it was the Democratic base, and then Gingrich's reaction that didn't even learn the lesson, just sort of <laughs> repeated the, the overreach. Are Republicans in 2017 guilty of overreach? Because on the one hand, they haven't done much, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, they've tried to. <laughs> I, I actually have a, an afterword in one of the chapters where um, I say that the, the reason for this ping-ponging dynamic is the overreach followed by getting slapped down by the electorate and to the extent that Trump doesn't accomplish anything, that sort of takes the sales out of the, the window, the sales of the overreach. Now, now actually, he has, he has accomplished a lot behind the scenes of the executive orders, as we all know. But the fact is that basically, as far as the ordinary person is concerned, there haven't been any major legislative initiatives that go against public opinion. So that, I think, is sort of, at this point, missing uh, from the, the, the usual dynamic. Right. And when you hear Republicans explain why they had to go after Obamacare first thing out of the shoot, it's what the base demanded. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So the more sensible approach you think would have been to, let's say, do infrastructure first, try to do something where he could have brought the two sides together. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's the problem. In a sense, the, the, the bigger your win and the more you accomplish, the more likely you are to be slapped down in the next election. Because, <laughs> because there's, there's no majority for what your base wants to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, Final question. So how does this polarizing process give us the choice of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, who individually are two remarkably polarizing people and how they are perceived? Um, That's a really good question. In a sense, I mean, on the Republican side, um, the polarizing, the thing didn't work. I mean, uh, you know, basically we would have gotten a Ted Cruz or, or you have well, you have lanes as we've talked about this before, right. and uh, you, see, you so in both parties you have the establishment lane, which is pretty, relatively speaking, moderate, uh, wants to win the election. Then you have the, the the more ideological lane that says we we're going to win, but only if we have the true conservative, the true liberal, and so you have that typical conflict. Now Trump had his own lane. Uh, Trump sort of saw the op- like Perot saw the opportunity. There's a there's a big open lane here, right. and he's the outsider. He had the money to contend it, and he had this ability to generate billions of free publicity. The media just couldn't help themselves when it came to Trump, and so I think that was in a sense sort of a he may have he may have decided he may have shown us that in the modern American context with social media and everything that there is another lane. That's, you don't have to go through the party. Uh, to, so that's possible. With Clinton, I think the Democrats just, um, the, the idea that it's her turn, that the, there's still this belief in the Clinton machine. Maybe had it not been, had been anybody but Sanders. I mean, you remember Sanders starts the election as sort of this slightly wacky guy from Vermont, you know, and, and he shocks everybody by how the, the wellspring of support for him. So I'm not sure how much to generalize from, from that. But now clearly there's going to be Lots of people fighting for the progressive lane that Sanders occupied. What and lane would what lane would Joe Biden have taken if he jumped in? I think I think Joe would Biden would have had somewhat the same as the Hillary lane, but with a much um, sort of oriented much more toward working people and much less you know toward sort of this urban 
liberal wing of the party. And I, I've said in the book, I think Biden would have won the election. I ask because um, in theory, mm-hmm. Mo, he, he could have been a coalition Democrat and that he could have <coughs> merged African-Americans, being Barack Obama's vice president, with his own blue-collar background from Pennsylvania. And so he could have tried to, to stitch two sides together. I think that's right. I think of all the candidates out there, he had the, the most potential for that. Mm-hmm. All right. So looking at 2020, the Democrats, who, who interests you right now? Oh, there are so many of them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm reminded of 1974 uh, when Gallup was getting ready to to start their trial heats. If the election were held today, who would you uh, vote for? And they said, who would the candidates be? And they they surveyed the Democratic Party, all the officials, and they came up with 34 possible Democratic candidates. Jimmy Carter's name was not one of the 34. Exactly. And we have the same sort of situation here now. There's how many Democrats have been mentioned and have sort of indicated interest. And so who is going to come out of this, this mess? I have no idea. Now, do you think the Republican existence is so unstable that there could be a challenger to Trump? Uh, all depends. If um, if they lose Congress or lose the House, at least in 2018, uh, if Trump's numbers fall from where they are now, if it looks like they're sure to lose the presidency in 2020, uh, then I certainly think there could be a challenge. If they sort of do reasonably well in the midterm elections and the economy is still going on, I don't, it might become less likely. Okay. Now, a final, final question. I know I said a final question five minutes ago, but this is the final, final question. Look at your own profession, looking at political science. What does political science have to do differently with regard to the 2018 and 2020 elections? Oh, I'm not sure we need to do uh, do anything differently. Um, there, it's a big profession. Uh, there's enough people doing almost everything. Uh, and I mean, we the models are, they basically give us a baseline. They tell us, all right, who's who's fighting an uphill race, who's fighting a downhill race in an election. And the campaigns are sort of the the icing on the top of the cake, basically, to say which way it's going to go. And I think that there's more data out there now than ever. And it's not like it used to be that the data came available six months after the election. We now have people like Doug Doug Rivers, basically, real-time data. Uh, So I think we're sort of equipped more than ever to, uh, to say stuff about the election. Now, now, whether you can get through of the, the whole cacophony of commentary out there with people who sort of know what they think and don't care <laughs> what the data say, uh, that's always a, you know, a problem. But I think we're basically, you know, I'll be, I figure I have one more election cycle in me. And uh, so I'll be doing the same thing I've been doing in the past. The book is Unstable Majorities, Polarization, Party Sorting, and Political Stalemate. Mo Fiorina, thanks for the conversation. You're very welcome, Bill. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Convince your friends to give us a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Mofi Arena and his Hoover colleagues to your inbox every workday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at H-O-O-V-E-R-I-N-S-T. Mofi Arena's book, again, is Unstable Majorities, Polarization, Party Sorting, Political Statement. Where do they get it? Amazon. Amazon. Christmas is coming up. It's a good Christmas talking stuffer. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org. For Hoover's channels on iTunes, 
SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.